This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 749. I never thought that while I was door dashing in college, not having the most clear vision of what I wanted to do after, that real estate would allow me to own over 10 properties, right around a million and a half in valuation, and have the ability to create some long term consistent cash flow. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Podcast, here today with my co host, Rob Abasolo with a show that is going to blow your mind. Today's guest is 22-year-old Josh Janice, who has already established a real estate portfolio of over 10 properties, is also selling houses as an agent. He sold $17 million last year. And in this episode, Rob and I get into how he's doing it and what he's figured out that other people haven't. My mind is still blown, Rob. How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of those things where I'm just like, when you find someone that sort of unlocks something in real estate and they're absolutely crushing it, it's super impressive. But when you find someone that's 22 years old, making six figures a month, doing really well in real estate, it really is just one of those things where I'm like, man, I got to catch up. And I'm like 10 years after this guy. Yeah. And that leads us to today's quick tip. Get started in real estate early, right? How can you get started now? I've often heard it said that the best time to buy real estate is 10 years ago. The quicker you get that clock started, the better it's going to be for you. The best deals that I have is the stuff that I bought the longest time ago. That that does not mean to buy bad deals early, but buy good deals early and wait. Rob, what's something about today's show that you think people should keep an eye out for? You know, even with Josh's success and how much money he was making, which we'll get into that in the episode, he was still really honest about his fears getting into his first property that he probably could have straight up paid cash for in like one or two months. Mm-hmm. And so it was just nice to hear that even someone that could be making so much money could still be vulnerable and kind of fearful in their first deal. But it was really cool to see the glow up and to see that that first deal kind of catapulted him to where he is today. So yeah, just a really cool, uh, inspiring moment, I think, to, to just hear him put it all out there. Yeah. And he also shares how he got started in business making duct tape wallets and door dashing. Like, this is a person <laughs> yeah. who listened to the podcast, driving around, dropping off Jack in the Box and pizzas, and turned it into a real estate empire, just like many of you that are listening to this now really want. So, this is one I would listen to twice and pull as many pieces of information as you can out of this story to think of how you can apply it to your life. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. It's a simple concept, right? But not necessarily an easy concept. Right now, high interest rates have crushed the real estate market. Prices are falling and properties are available at a discount, which means Fundrise believes that now is the time to expand the Fundrise flagship fund's billion-dollar real estate portfolio. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in minutes by visiting fundrise.com slash pockets. Fundrise.com slash pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Without any further ado, let's bring in real estate phenom, Josh Janice. Today's guest, Josh Janice, knew in high school that he wanted to retire by 30 years of age. So he built and managed different side hustles, from duct tape wallets to a successful sneaker business. Josh was a college student who also drove for DoorDash. Last year, at age 22, he sold over 125 properties in his first year as a real estate agent, totaling over $17 million as an investor-friendly agent. He has purchased and renovated over 10 properties using very little of his own money in real estate over the last seven months. We are going to unpack this today. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. 
Yeah, it sounds like you have a strong entrepreneurial focus. And before we get into how you accomplish everything that I've said, what was it about real estate that attracted you in the first place? So when I was younger, I was always trying to save money. Um, I didn't really know exactly the most productive thing to do with it. But I was like, hey, I might as well stash it away and eventually I'll figure it out. I had around like $10,000 saved up, um, like free capital to use. And I was in starting my college career and I was introduced to the idea of house hacking when basically Googling what to do with ten dollars to $20,000 when you're 20. And that led me to bigger pockets. And that was kind of my introduction to real estate as a whole. So did you ever actually go anywhere with house hacking? Um, I was close. So back when I was living in Cleveland, Ohio, I was looking at properties. I figured out kind of where I wanted a house hack, but I ended up switching and going to a different college. I was, went to the Ohio State University. And then my next journey was going to be to house hack there, but I didn't actually end up doing it. So Josh, it seems like obviously you're a little bit uh, entrepreneurial here. Like before we get into the real estate stuff, because I think even at the age of 22, um, having $10,000 in your bank account is, is a hard thing, right? A lot of people are like, how can I get 10,000 bucks? So can you tell us a little bit about how you even got the 10,000 bucks? Did you just have a ton of side hustles or were you working a job? Sure. So I was working, you know, I was doing a lot of side hustles. I used to make duct tape wallets when I was in like middle school and try to sell those. And that was kind of fun. And um, the next thing I was really interested in was like sneakers, the whole sneaker culture, reselling, because I was a pretty big basketball player. Um, and I kind of was exposed to that industry. So I was going to different sneaker events. I would um, rent out a table, bring as much shoes as I could fit in my couple of bags and try to sell them. And basically, you just kept those profits over the years. Nice. Well, what did a duct tape wallet run you back in the day? Oh, man, it was like $5 to sell. I mean, it was a lot of work for $5. Oh, I see. Because I was going to say, you know, a roll of, to a roll of uh, well, toilet paper, sorry, duct tape going to cost you like three, four bucks, you know? So, yeah, if you can make... See, Josh, this is my problem. Rob always forgets to include the value of time. He only looks <laughs> at the money when he calculates ROI, as you can see. That's true. But you had a lot of time. Sure. Yeah. I was doing it in class and on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of me. I wish I had had something. I've always had a very difficult time paying attention in class and school. Anytime that I have to follow somebody else's pace, if they're talking too slow, I'm like, ah, my brain just wanders. I can't sit there. So they didn't have fidget spinners or what's the other things that everybody plays with now, Rob? Fidget cubes. Fidget cubes. There you go. Right. What did we have in my day? We had like we had stupid pencils with different colored lead that you could like click the different colors and play with. Uh, or we had these bracelets that you could snap on your wrist and they would like curl up in a ball. I doubt either of you guys ever saw those things. But oh, yeah, you still have that bright pink one, right? That you always play play with during the podcast. Yeah. And when I work out, that's like my my lucky workout <laughs> wristband. Bright pink. Absolutely. Pinker pockets. For the win. So you, you're you an entrepreneurial at heart, Josh, which I love because I know this is where you learn the fundamentals of that later translated into real estate investing. We interviewed Ryan Pineda on our podcast years ago, and he talked about how he flipped couches. He would buy couches, fix them up and flip them, which he then later turned into a house flipping business. And now he's built an entire empire, which I like to think we are basically the ones that launched him into the atmosphere. But Ryan took that atmospheric launch and built something pretty cool out of it. So I'm curious if you could share what lessons do you think you learned with some of these early endeavors that translated into real estate later? Um, I guess in the sneaker culture, you would see some of these really cool shoes, right? That like athletes were wearing or celebrities. 
and maybe you'd flip a few pairs and make like 500 bucks and you want to take that profit and immediately buy your own pair to keep and wear. And my mindset was I'd rather save that money and maybe put it towards like an asset. I learned the idea of assets when I was younger where you can actually use money to make more money. I didn't really understand which assets to use at the time. I just knew that concept and I was like, it's got to be a better way of spending my $500 profit. So I think that's one thing that I learned for sure when I was younger. By the way, that's not the, the worst mindset to have where you say, I really want this thing. So I'm going to figure out how to make money with this thing that I want, sell it, make a profit, and then get the thing that I want. Th that's real estate in a nutshell, right? You want to acquire property. So you buy a property, you flip it, you take the profits. And what do you do? You, you go and you, usually if you're a good real estate investor, you go and you dump it back into another property or you buy a property and have other people pay for it. Uh, long-term rentals or short-term rentals, right? So I think it's the, the, the mindset is not incorrect. It's just really impressive that you found out at a very young age that instead of buying sneakers, you should put it into something that's going to make you more money. Yeah. I think, um, I was always trying to find more ways to be more productive with my money. Like I learned early on, like for certain shoes that I have to go to the store and wait multiple hours. I was thinking like, this isn't very scalable if I want to try to get like 20 pairs of shoes because I can't be simultaneously at 20 places at the same time. I have to learn how to rely on other people. Different things like that helped. So, I, you know, I always thought, because I tried different endeavors too. I worked at restaurants and I learned how to sell wine and steak. And then I tried to get a job selling cars at one point. And that didn't work out. But ultimately, I think a lot of us see real estate as the pinnacle we're trying to get to. We want to sell the most expensive thing we can. Getting a real estate license is not something you need this four-year degree. I wish it was. I'd feel much better if agents had to go get a two- or four-year degree to sell houses because there'd be less crappy ones out there. And we'll get into your career there too, Josh. But was it the same thing for you that real estate was just a natural progression of the best thing that you could sell? Yeah, I think so. It seemed like I had to put almost like now that I look back on it, the amount of time it takes for me to sell one house was almost the same amount of time and energy it took for me to sell one or two pairs of shoes. Huh. in some ways. And your hands aren't sore from creating these duct tape wallets all the time. Yes, <laughs> easier. that too. Yeah. You let DocuSign do all the work, less paper cuts. All right, so let's go back in time. You're in college. I go back in time, you're 22 years old. You might still be in college. <laughs> where does this interest in real estate start to come into play? How and where did you start to dig in? I mean, I just was Googling, you know, what do I do with 10000 or $20,000? How do I invest it? And... um. I can't remember if it was bigger pockets right away, but I saw like house hack and I was like, mm, maybe I could buy like a property, you know, on the college campus I was going to live in one unit, rent everything else out. Um, and that slowly led me to understand like, oh man, like if I become an agent, I could figure out a way to find like mm. potentially the best deals. So that was my goal. So you didn't buy a house to house act, but you got exposed to real estate. It made sense to you. And you thought, you know what? I'll just get my license and I'll help other people do the same thing. Yep. All right. So did you just look up how to get a real estate license and just start studying and do that? Or did you have a mentor that kind of guided you? Um, the first thing was like diving into the bigger pockets forums. Like really, this podcast might sound like a bigger pot, like bigger pockets, like promotion, but in all reality, like a ton of my growth really like stemmed from that foundation but that was the, that was one of the first things and then i also got latched on to a guy named remington lyman who's also an agent um he works at reefco real estate he owns the brokerage i work at but i um you know i messaged him i was like explaining my situation he hopped on a zoom call with me explained you know the benefits of house hacking like 
Maybe if you wanted to become an agent here or come here, we can teach you how to find off-market deals. We can help you build those systems. And then next thing you know, I was working as hard as I can to get my license. Yeah, so you're getting your license. And obviously, you know, as you establish your real estate agent business, uh, that's going to take some time to get that deal flow and actually closing properties and making money. Were you working any other jobs while you were doing this? Or were you all in at the very beginning? In the very beginning, I was still taking classes. I was studying computer science. And then I was um, driving for DoorDash like 20 to 30 hours a week. And then at any moment I could, I was trying to figure out, I was trying to just cold call. That was my main source of finding deals in the beginning. My plan was cold call, find a deal, or at least get somebody to talk to me about their property, get some details, bring it to one of the agents that I was working with. And they would kind of break down the deal, explain like, ooh, maybe an investor would like this or get some clarification on what the rents are, the lease terms are. And it started there. Did you ever have to like say, were you ever deep in conversation? You're like, give me one second. And then you'd pause to take a photo of the, the DoorDash delivery to upload in the app and then get back on the call? Uh, Maybe. I was trying not to do the delivery while calling. To, I was doing it when I was driving, but not necessarily. <laughs> oh, mid, mid delivery? Yeah, yeah. So what kind of money? Uh, what kind of money does a DoorDasher make? If you're make if you're working twenty to thirty hours a, a week, is that pretty good income? Can you give us a little frame of reference there? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I was around five to eight hundred dollars per week. I think working at that amount of hours, it's yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's solid, especially if you're in college and you're kind of doing doing all that. So you're DoorDashing, making pretty good money for where you are in life, and you're cold calling. What was that first deal like when you actually landed a lead that that became a, a transaction that paid you out? Definitely. So I was cold calling four units in what I would call like an A-class area. Um, I just found a guy that happened to be motivated that day. He was pretty easy to talk with. I presented it to the agent I was working with. He's like, oh yeah, we could sell this deal. So um, I wrote up an email, which is the way that we kind of market our deals. Then he presented it to his investors. And somebody ended up taking the deal on. Um, and that took about a month to close as most properties do. And I basically made what I would make in like a month and a half from Nordash from that. And I was pretty psyched because I thought like, I just need to knock out a few more of these and I could end up making this produce more income than just Nordash. So you started mathing out like, oh man, if I did this three times, I'll make this amount of money. Oh yeah, definitely. And then another thing is like, if you get your license, you end up make, making a much bigger cut because you can actually represent either the seller or the buyer depends on the situation. So I was making like a referral fee. So as soon as that deal closed, I was like, all right, I got to get my license. Let's start studying right now and try to knock it out. Yeah. So was that more like a, I don't know, like a wholesale deal where you, you, you're calling, you find someone, you get a property off market. They're like, yeah, I'm willing to sell it. And then you're basically pass. Are you then passing that off to realtors to sell or were you selling it to an investor and taking like a, a small fee for that? Um, I worked under a realtor named Abe. Um, so basically I just wrote all the details of the property, gave it to him, and then he found an investor that was interested in the brokerage that I was working at. So it's it's kind of like a hybrid form of wholesaling. We just don't actually put the deals under contract. We just present the information to the potential investors. Makes sense. So you started sort of, uh, I guess you, you close this deal. You're like, oh my gosh, I just got to do this this many times. You start getting more into this. How were you able to balance everything 
from, you know, getting your license to finishing college to, I assume, still maybe working some DoorDash here and there. I mean, at that point, basically, I was like, I'm just going to use all of my time outside of school to dedicate towards, you know, still maintaining a cold calling schedule, which I think is really important, and then getting my license. So I got my license in about two months. Are cold call hours always 9 to 5, or were you, like, getting creative and calling from, like, 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. too? Uh, nine to 11 was like my cold, cold calls, the people I'd never really talked to. Um, and then like, I would use one to five as a lot of follow-ups or new cold calls, but it seemed like, you know, if you pick, if you hit somebody in the morning when they're driving, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Call me back later. Then I just hit him later. And usually that's a, that ended up being a pretty decent converter. David, do you consider yourself much of a, like a very good cold caller? Um, I've never heard this side of you before, so I'm curious. I did it in the beginning of my career when I had to. I didn't love it, uh, so I didn't do it a lot. Uh, you sort of like when you're trying to find deals, you there's most people fall into one of two categories. There's the direct contact person, which is a cold caller, or there's the content creator, which sort of gets people coming to them. Like I, most people usually take one of those two paths, and because I ended up as a podcast host and an author, I kind of went the content creation side as opposed to mm-hmm. the direct cold call. Josh, I mean you you did what you could do because you didn't have a huge podcast behind you to spread the word. I'm curious because you mentioned something, you, you talked about this like wholesale hybrid model. Can you give us a little more detail of what you mean by how you were making money on these deals? Sure. So the seller was like, hey, I want 450 for this four for this four unit. And generally wholesalers would write up a contract, get it under contract, and then sell that contract for a fee. So the way that we do it as at the brokerage I work at at Reefco, we don't um, put it under contract. We just take all the details of the deal, write it in like an email, and then present that to our investors. And then if one of our investors likes it or they want to write an offer, we just write up the offer and present it directly to the seller. And how are you being compensated? Are you getting a listing agreement from the seller when you bring the buyer to them and, and there's a commission in there for you guys? We don't actually use listing agreements, no. So in that during that time frame when I didn't have my license, um, I was getting a, uh, a fourth of the commission for the agent I was working under. So he got 3%, then the, the agent that brought the buyer got 3%, and then I, I ended up with 25% of the 3%. That's how we did it. How were you guys getting commissions if there was no listing agreement? Um, it's still an executable contract with commissions in the agreement. So it's going to say seller to pay 6% to our brokerage. I gotcha. Yeah. So you would bring a buyer and in the offer, it would have who was getting paid as far as the agents are concerned. Correct. I see. So rather than putting, getting a house, putting it on the market, letting everybody see it, trying to get offers, negotiating the highest one, you guys just cut to the chase and you said, Hey, I got a buyer that will pay this much for your house. If you want to take the deal, here's how much it's going to cost you. Here's what the net to use going to be. And you guys were running a little more efficiently. Yeah, I think it allows us to kind of take advantage of those leads that aren't as motivated to sign a listing agreement because there's a lot of people that fall in that category, I think. And this is also a form of off-market deal. So other buyers didn't have access to the same stuff that you guys were bringing them, correct? Yep. Yeah, but Josh, what would stop a... Let's say you're presenting this property, right? Because you, you don't have a contract or you don't have a, a listing agreement. What would stop a, a like an investor? If you say, hey, investor, I've got this cool property. Here's the address. What would stop them from just going over you and going straight to the to the seller and just transacting the the deal themselves? That's a good question. So we have an off-market agreement that we present to everybody prior to setting deals that roughly states, 
if you go after a deal that we bring you, you have to use us as your agent. So um, in the beginning, when they haven't signed it yet, we'll send people like rough deep descriptions of all the deals. It won't have the address, usually won't have pictures. But then if they're like, hey, I really like the concept of this deal, we'll set on the agreement. And then if they sign it, we're good to go. So that's a form of a buyer representation agreement. You don't have to, people don't realize you don't have to set it up for every house that I show you or every house you could buy. You can say for this address, I have to be your agent, but they could use a different buyer's agent for different properties they could brought to them. That actually makes sense. And I see now why you're calling it a wholesale hybrid because wholesalers do it that way. They say, here's a 3-2 with 1,800 square feet in this zip code that would rent for this much money. That's all that people get to start with until they want to analyze it later. So you kind of use that marketing approach paired with real estate contracts to protect each party there. So what happened next? Like, How did you get to the point that you were making more from these commissions than you were making from your door dashing? So um, that first check came in. That was about a month and a half's worth of DoorDash. I had a lot of warm leads. People that weren't ready to sell right away, but they were getting close. And I was basically like, I'm going to take the next six weeks. I'm going to go really hard at this. Um, and at that point, I started, you know, I was spending two to three times more hours per week on this than I was before. Um, then I got my license and I started putting a whole bunch of deals in contract. And when you say you're putting two or three more hours, do you mean just in the follow up? Sorry, my bad. Like two to three times more hours per week than I was before because I was like, hey, no more DoorDash for now. We'll just work on real estate. Got it. And was the, all that time on lead generation, was it following up with... Because you said you had a large pool of warm leads. So these are people that, you know, they're interested. They're not ready to pull the trigger necessarily. But if you kind of keep approaching them, coming back to them, eventually they convert, right? Yeah, eventually. Yeah. All right. Were there any key learning points during this difficult time? Like... What was going on in the market at this time? Was it still red hot? Were things slowing down? Where are we in time? This is the beginning of uh, 22. So it was still hot, definitely. It was cooling off a little bit. Um, but, you know, every deal that was decent that hit the market would have multiple offers and the listing agent would be getting hounded. So it was definitely tough. Um, at this time, I also tried to make a bigger presence on bigger pockets. So I was posting a lot. I think I cranked out a thousand posts in about three months. Wait, hold on. The, so you you were posting out? Okay, so that's ninety days. So you were posting ten times to twelve times a day on the bigger pockets forums. Yep. Yeah, that was that was my schedule. I believe from five thirty to six thirty every morning. I had to spend an hour in bigger pockets by posting or at least reading content and trying to provide value. What kind of like you were, you were making posts and actually putting content out there. What's an example of something you'd throw out into the, uh, the bigger pockets universe. Um, I mean, most of it was just comments on people's questions. I would try to answer them the best that I could. I would talk about the Ohio market, the advantages to investing here. I would talk about kind of like my journey and how I'm learning. Did you, did you feel like people start to know who you were? Like, did you, get any relationships from doing that? Oh yeah. I was getting people reaching out to me in bigger pockets. They're like, Hey, like I see, you know, a little bit about this market or real estate investing in general. Um, and at that point I was trying to manage those leads. And then I was also reaching out to other people. So I set up like a Calendly link. It was like, Hey, set up a 15 minute call with me. We'll figure out, you know, what you're looking for and how I can help. So 
when the market was hot and listing agents were getting multiple offers, how are you getting sellers to agree to sell their properties through you to a specific buyer rather than putting it out there for everyone to see? So I think the fact that we weren't using listing agreements, they were a lot calmer. They didn't feel like you were trying to push them to sell. It was more so like, like I was like, hey man, like, you know, what what do you need for this property? Like what number would you not deny? And then we would, if that number made decent sense, we'd spend the time to write it up and market it out. And they weren't having to fix their house up. I'm assuming a lot of these were probably sold with tenants already inside. Yeah, tenants inside. We get the the rents, the lease terms. They would almost always be as is. Yep. So, was, and then, what were you doing to find actual properties? Were you just pulling lists? Was this you'd be driving around and just look and see a multi-unit property you thought an investor would like? I was pulling lists from PropStream for the most part and targeting different areas. I was trying to pull lists of people that hadn't sold in the last year or two years or that bought it for a really low price compared to what it was potentially worth now because I felt like those could have been more motivated people. All right. So you're in this this world, right, where you're figuring out your systems. I see that you've developed habits. You had a schedule. Um, you're now an agent. Give us an idea. How long did it take from when you got your license to the first deal that you closed as an agent? How long did that take? That was December to March. So basically three months. And I had my first 11 deals fall out of contract. It was pretty brutal. Um, I felt like everything was falling out for the most unique reasons. Um, but it was a very, you know, it was a big learning experience for me because I was making mistakes for sure. <laughs> Man, the 11 deals, that is brutal. David, is that normal at all? I know you run a team of the David Green team, uh, the most elite real estate agents out there. Is it normal for 11 uh you know, deals to just fall out for, from like a first time realtor? No, but as I'm listening to Josh's strategy here, that starts to make sense. This is more of a volume based approach. He has sellers that are not motivated. He has buyers that they don't have a relationship with. Everyone's a bit of a merchant Marine here. Like it's just pure numbers. If you can get me a deal that gets me the cash on cash return that I want, I'll go forward. Or if you can get me this number that was probably higher than what they thought the property was worth, so you've got sellers that probably want to sell for more than a buyer would want to pay. You get buyers that are looking for the deal of the century. Every time you have these expectations that are off, it's easier for a deal to fall apart. So I'm assuming, Josh, you just had to make up for that with volume. You were probably just a workhorse that was constantly looking for sellers, looking for buyers, matching them together, moving on to the next thing. Definitely. Yes. That's I haven't really heard a summary like that before. That's a very good way of explaining it. I was basically just taking two low chance two people that had a low chance of closing and putting them together when that happens you get a really low chance of closing david is the king of this by the way he is the king of summarizing <laughs> something so concisely and succinct i remember we had uh let's see who was it chris voss chris voss came on and he gave like a very like a philosophical thing and then david comes in he's like so basically based on this and this it's this right and chris voss was like yeah it is that no one's ever told me that before and i was like it was like uh, watching, you know, uh, who painted the Mona Lisa? The painter of the Mona Lisa. Paint the Mona Lisa, but in the real estate world. Michelangelo. Shoot, I'm about to look so dumb. Everyone in the comments is going to be like, no, it wasn't Michelangelo. Well, the key is you have to do that with Chris Voss because you don't want to end up in a negotiation with him. Oh, no. I remember who it was. It was it was also the Blue Angels guy. He was like, had this whole story about how he, had the, how he made a mistake in the jet. And then he was like, can you guess the reason that I made that mistake. And then uh, David was like, well, it was probably because you got too comfortable and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, 
I've told that story 1,100 times, <laughs> and no one has ever said that to me. Yeah, that's exactly why. And he was stunned. So anyways, I always like to point that out when I see it. Well, thank you. Quick tip here. If you would like to be able to do the same thing, stop looking for patterns to follow or as far as like a strategy. Give me a blueprint. I just want to go do something. And start asking questions like, well, why did that work? Or why did that not work? And then this stuff sort of jumps out. So like just from that information alone, I can tell certain things about Josh. He's a workhorse. He does not get emotionally attached to any of these deals. When he puts something in contract, he doesn't spend the money before it closes. He's just like, that's a metric that goes on a spreadsheet. I am now back to going to work. He focuses on what we call the lead measures, not the lag measures. So what is it I can do right now as opposed to measuring something that already happened? This is all really good advice for everyone. You see this with real estate agents where they work really hard. They put a deal in contract. They get emotionally excited. They celebrate. They go out drinking with their friends. They start thinking about what they're going to spend the money on. They're calculating their commissions, right? Real estate agents can calculate 3% of anything, which is funny (laughs) because we don't all get 3% hardly ever anymore. But they get super attached to the deal. And then when something goes wrong, the appraisal comes in low, the inspection report is bad, the client can't get the loan, whatever it is. They get really discouraged, and then they go drinking again, which is why most real estate agents all become alcoholics, because they're drinking when they're excited, and they're drinking when they're bummed out, and they're just drinking all the time. I think Josh's approach is much better, because you're sort of approaching the business of selling homes like a real estate investor would think, where you're just letting the numbers make the decisions. Am I off with that? You're right. Yeah, it's just just keep put them in contract, figure out what mistake I made there, and what can I change in my systems and my approach to potentially avoid that in the future. Okay, so let me ask you, what are some of the key mistakes that you can share that you learned when you put these deals together that made the deals fall apart? So the first thing would be not vetting the sellers. Sometimes they wouldn't, I mean, kind of funny, they didn't even really know what they owned. They would say like, oh, there's three, but these are two three-bedroom units. And then you get them a contract, the inspector goes there and they're like, dude, there's only two bedrooms. And it's like, oh, can't do anything about that. You can't just build a new bedroom. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing is I learned about you know, making sure the tenants are paying and the tenants are like paying on time. That's very important. So like getting those uh, estoppel agreements potentially in the beginning because that ended up causing issues at the end before closing multiple times. Um, and then not necessarily betting buyer or vetting buyers very well. So like one example that's kind of funny is I had a guy trying to buy two properties for $600,000. Uh, we fell like two weeks prior to close because he couldn't get financing. And I learned that he had like less than eight grand in his, less than $10,000 in his bank. And he was trying to put 25% down. And I'm like, do, do we even do the math here? <laughs> this is so funny. Because I could just totally see how this method would attract those problems, right? This is like trying to find a date on Craigslist. You're like, it's a vol- <laughs> it's a numbers game, baby. You just got to keep lining them up because you're going to get these people that are looking for a deal that's unrealistic. And let the $8,000 guy, I bet you what he was doing was he was he brought this deal to other people and he was trying to get their money on this deal that had a high cash on cash return number because he listens to the podcast and he hears Brandon Turner say, when you have a great deal, you can find the money. So they he didn't tell you that. He's like, yeah, I'll buy it. And then he's running around telling everyone he can, like, what's the what's the raising private capital script I'm supposed to use? He's trying to get someone to come in on the deal. He ran out of time, and then he has to just back out of it. And you, Josh, 
you get to sort of work your way through all of these really incredible scenarios that normally a real estate agent like us, we're like, oh, let's see your proof of funds. Oh, you have $8,000. No, we're not going to go show you homes. You didn't get to do that. So did you put a system together? Do you have like a, a checklist now? Do you have a screening process for both the buyers and the sellers? Definitely. Yeah. I try to write procedures for as many things as I can. I hop on a phone call immediately with the people as soon as I meet them, a little 15 minute meeting, make sure like, Hey, like, are you pre-approved? If not, I have these lenders that I recommend. They're great in this area. When I connect with them, I try to figure out their timeline. You know, when you got, when you look into a uh, lockdown, a deal. Another thing I think is really important for working with investors is what is your criteria? Um, right. A lot of investors don't necessarily put that forward. Um, and the agents can end up wasting time because they don't really know what the people are looking for. Yeah. I think that's a common complaint investors have too. I told them what I want. The agent didn't listen to me. That's one way to mess it up. The other way is the agent doesn't even think to ask, what do you want? You know, it's funny in our world, we'll say, someone will say they want a deal and we don't even think to ask them to define what they mean by deal. Some people mean a really high cash on cash return. Some people mean a property in the best area. Some people mean something at significantly less than ARV. Some people mean just any any multi-unit property. It can mean so many different things to people about a deal without asking what that means. It's very hard to make sure that what you're bringing them is going to land. In your experience, what are most of your investor clients looking for in what they call a deal? Around 60% of the people are trying to get into real estate. They have kids, they have a full-time job. They're not trying to you know, quit everything and just do real estate. So they want properties that are turnkey, we're close to, they're occupied, they're producing a good sense of cash flow, and they can buy a couple of those a year and be happy with a good portfolio when they're done. And then the other 40% of people, I would say, are looking to do value add, the burst strategy, creative financing when it comes up, self-management, um, anything that's a little bit more involved and requires a lot more of your time, that's for the other people. So these are the financial freedom group that you're basically working with. They're trying to get up enough cash flow they can quit their job. Yeah, yeah. That's I have a lot of calls where the first two minutes it's like, yeah, I want to retire in five years. It's like, you can do it. It's just hard. <laughs> Let me show you how to sell some duct tape wallets. <laughs> so you mentioned something earlier, Josh, a term estoppel. Do you think you can just give us a quick definition of that? what that is? Because it seemed like that was something that was popping up in a lot of these deals that, that fell out. Yeah, Um it's basically a summary of what the tenant is paying, um, what their lease terms are, and showing that they have been paying. I don't actually use estoppel agreements. That's just like a term that I thought most people knew. But it's basically, I want to see the rent history. Like sometimes the seller will just show me bank account to show that the deposits are coming in or an actual like summary or an owner statement from the property management company. Something showing that the cash flow is real. It's not fake. So you close this first deal. You, <laughs> 11 deals, right? Fall through. You close your first deal. Um, tell us a little bit about the actual numbers on that first one. You said that it was, uh, I guess, the same as working a month and a half in the DoorDash world, right? Yeah. So it was a $450,000 four unit. Um, it, there was 3% paid to the agent that I was working under. So he got $9,000 or sorry, $12,000. And then I got a quarter of that. So I got around like three grand. Nice. How did that feel? That was really cool. I, that was the biggest check I think I've ever gotten. And I was like a little intimidated, but I was like, 
we don't spend this now. This is this is like our life for the next like two months. Oh yeah, that's a lot of ramen noodles right there, especially at the beginning when you're grinding so much. So let's fast forward a little bit because I know you're grinding it out on the you know on the agent side. Tell us about your your actual first deal because David mentioned at the beginning of the show that you bought ten deals, which I think was about one point five million dollars in total for the portfolio. So how did you actually get into the investing side of things? Definitely. So I started to sell a lot of properties. Um, by month six, I had scaled my business up to like fifty thousand dollars a month in commission. So I had actually had cash reserves, and I found um, these two duplexes listed by the same agent. They had been sitting on the market for a few months. So I called him up um, and he was like, yeah, the owner has short-term debt on it. He really needs to sell it. They're getting ready to call his note. Um, and they were basically willing to sell them at like a 30% discount. And I ran my numbers and I was like, this could make for a great burr, like both of them. You could be all in right around 70 to 75% ARV. And when you pull your money out, it's still going to produce a pretty solid cash flow. So... I had to really trust my numbers, but I decided to go after one of them. Okay. So, wow, that's a $50,000 a month. That's what you were making. How old were you when you, when you reached that number? Uh, 21. 21. David, does that make you feel like, la- I feel so lazy as a, like as a 21 year old when I was back, I was not doing that. I was like trying to make, I don't know, man, that's crazy. Congratulations. That is so cool. I was making less than that in a year, and that was still more money than everybody else that I knew. <laughs> Dude, that's crazy. So all of that, the $50,000 a month, obviously that's going to lead into your investment strategy, but that just came from hunkering down on your agent business, growing those systems, developing your processes, and then whoosh, you like grew it into just 50 k a month. That's insane. Yeah. And by month eight, I actually got it to about a hundred K. So ever since then, I'm right around a hundred thousand a month. Um, I've been using, I've been leveraging VAs, uh, for a lot of procedures. I try to do, I try to delegate as many tasks as I can as a realtor, try not to, I don't know, spend all day writing contracts as an example, cause I can take like 30 minutes on average. And I'm a lot of days I'm writing between eight and 10 offers. Um, that would be my entire day. So, <laughs> um, can I come work for you, please? Can David and I come work, come work for you? Uh, okay. So you have no deals in the first three months and you start to fire on all cylinders by June of 2022, you decide to get your first investment, which is a burr, it sounds like, or some kind of re- rehab. How did that go? Was that like a whole new set of skills that you had to learn after already being so good at the real estate side, the, the realty side? Yeah. I mean, I'd never done any rehabs. I didn't really know how to price things out very well. So one of these contractors that I had been working with for my clients, I was like, hey, can you walk this for me? Give me a bid. He gave me a bid. The numbers made sense. And another thing was, is I could only get the price where it made sense if the owner was able to sell both of them. So I was able to find another investor to buy the other one at the same time. We lined them both up. Um, I used hard money for mine. They lended up to 90% of the project cost. Which, which is your purchase price plus your rehab, or 70% of the ARV, whichever number is less. Well, it sounds like we're already in the deal deep dive because this is what we're going to talk about. So let's go ahead and make this official.
At this segment of the show, we dive deep into a particular deal that our guest has done and get the juicy deets. So first question, what kind of property is this, Josh? It's a duplex, two bedroom units. Are you sure they're two bedroom units? Do you know what you have? Are you one of those sellers that claims (laughs) that he's got more bedrooms than he does? I knew. Luckily, this time I knew. All right. We'll take your word. And how'd you find it? It was on the market. Um, It had been on there for a few months. And I called the agent and he was like, we have to... You know, the sell the current owner has short-term debt on it. They're getting ready to call it. He really needs to sell. If you can sell this one and another one, you can get around a 30% discount. So my job was to try to sell one of them because in my current situation, I was only comfortable with taking down one deal. I didn't want to start with two $40,000 rehabs. Okay, how much was this property? It was $85,000 and... The rehab estimation was right around like $30,000 for the one that I took down. And the ARV that I had projected based on sales comps was right around 155000 And how'd you negotiate it? I mean, the agent basically told me that if you can close quick, if you can not have many contingencies, you can get it at this price. So then I counted around like 10000 lower. And then we met about halfway in the middle and got the deal done. And how did you end up funding it? Um, I use hard money. So uh, I had to put down around like 10%. And then I applied my commission because I was representing myself as part of my down payment. So I was only really out of pocket, like $10,000. And what'd you end up ultimately doing with this property? So I renovated it. It took a little bit longer than expected, as probably the vast majority of projects do. I learned a lot. Um, uh, As soon as I was done, I went to the bank. I refinanced it. I got almost all my money back out, and now I run it as a rental. Okay, so that was the outcome there. Tell me, what lessons did you learn from this deal? Um, You know, I was really scared of debt. I really didn't have any debt prior to this. Um, I was definitely scared of short-term debt because the hard money is like, they're knocking at your door in six months. Like, it's due. The property, you you either have to pay it off, you have to refinance it, or you have to sell it. So I was definitely intimidated taking on a property that currently wasn't livable and needed around 30 grand to be livable. So um, those are the things that I was scared of. But I, I learned from the investors and mentors around me that you really need to trust your numbers, like in, in, in any instance when evaluating a deal, because, you know, that's what you can rely on, especially when you feel uncertain. So, Josh, let, I guess I'm trying to understand, because I know you said you use hard money and you were really nervous about, I guess, getting into this property and that you needed $30,000 of work. But if I'm remembering correctly, was were you making $50,000 a month at this point? Yes. Yeah. So what was the real concern here? Because it seems like, you know, you probably could have covered expenses pretty easily. Yeah. I mean, the property was also not in a city that I was living in. So I was kind of mimicking the experience of an out-of-state investor because I bought it sight unseen um, and I was managing the entire project from remote. So I learned that. So how do you feel now though? Like, do you feel looking back, were you like, oh, it actually wasn't that bad? Or do you still have some of those same reservations doing the out-of-state stuff? I mean, after the first one, it's I feel way better. I feel a lot more confident. I can rely on my team. I can rely on the knowledge that I bring to the table by understanding sales comparables and things like that. I've got two questions. One, have you read Long Distance Real Estate Investing? Yes. I think it was the first book I read. Okay, good. Because that's the first book I wrote. So we have something in common. Number two, (laughs) 
If I were to put, make a revised version of this book based on your experience doing this deal out of state, what would you include or what, what would you tell me to include in the book? Um, I read it a while ago, so maybe this was in there, but... Bro, you're 22 years old. How long ago could a while... I don't know, two years? <laughs> <laughs> Year and a half. Uh, I would rely on multiple project managers, right? Those That can take the form of an agent just popping in every once in a while. That can be your property manager that mm -hmm. is responsible for tenant relations. Or that can just be a completely different contractor that comes in with his own third-party opinion about how your project's going. So you agree that the philosophy of have several people looking over everyone's work could extend into the actual rehab management. That's what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Anything else that I should know? Because I think I will revise this book, the Burr book, a couple other ones when I get some time. I'm just curious what needs to go in these books to update them. Um, don't rely on sales comparables that are old when you're initially looking at the deal. Because generally, at least in my state, the appraisers are going to look at the six months like the most recent sales in the last six months when they're appraising your property when in, when it's done. So the one thing that I did on my first deal was I was relying on a deal two doors down that appraised for the price I was going after. But by the time I was done with the rehab, that sales comp was outside the six-month window, so they no longer could use it. Mm -hmm. That's probably more relevant today, right? I think so, yeah. I was just about to say, for the last 10 years... You looked at comps and that was your worst case scenario. Odds are it was going to be better by the time it was done. Yeah. The market has turned around. Rates have went from 3% to 7, 8%. Now we're seeing appraisals come in low very frequently, right? A house could have sold for 800,000. You list it for 750. The appraisal comes in for 685 or something because rates have gone up so much. So that's another thing you got to be aware of is, uh, prices can go down now that rates have gone up and that can catch people by surprise. Any other surprises that came up specifically when it came to buying in another state that you just weren't prepared for? You know, always estimate a little bit over your initial rehab budget. I, the first deal I bought, I don't think the contractor looked up in the attic, but there were live electric wires running on the wood like floor in the attic, which is number one, very dangerous and number two, illegal. And uh, I had to address that immediately. That bumped my rehab budget around 10%. So I think and every project I've done since then, there's always things that pop up. I think a 10% contingency just should always be used. What about picking tenants? What can you tell us about choosing tenants, looking into tenant history? What are some things you look for? Um, you know, if you're buying something already tenant occupied, make sure they're paying, they're paying on time. Um, you can kind of see that the way that they're living, if you go in there and there's stuff everywhere and it's full to the ceiling, it's you might not always get your rent on time, let alone even get it. So you can still make deals work even with a non-paying tenant, depending on how good it is, right? Just make sure you're accounting those expenses in your numbers. Yeah, we briefly mentioned this earlier, and it's worth repeating. It's very easy to, especially if you're a new investor, you haven't done this for a while, to get a lease to see it. this property is making $950 a month to run your numbers based on the lease. You close on the property, you realize the tenant's eight months behind in rent, hasn't been paying. The landlord hasn't wanted to pay for an eviction or can't afford an eviction, and so they just sold it to you. That's why we verify that the money's actually being deposited in the bank, not just what the lease is for. And this is really, really, really important when you're buying off-market properties or deals directly from sellers, like you're saying, because most people, when their property is doing well, they don't think I should sell it. 
even if their return on equity is low, even unless there's like serious concerns in the market and people are thinking, I want to sell before things turn around. If your property is making money and nothing's going wrong, you just don't think about selling it. But when things start breaking, tenants stop paying, it becomes a headache. You try to fix it. When you realize you can't fix it quickly, sell, which is often exactly when buyers are getting introduced to that deal. And if you go in as the buyer expecting this is just like a regular house on the MLS that a seller is put in pristine shape and they're trying to get top dollar, you can really get taken advantage of. Is that something, do you have any stories you can share of clients you've had or situations you've had where that's been the case? Yeah, um, an off-market deal that um, I didn't sell, but it was in my office. This is a great example. Um, it was a duplex where both tenants were paying $1,100 a month. The rental comps were truly around 900, max 1,000. So it was really high, um, which is, should always be a red flag if you're seeing units renting for way more than what everything else is around it. But when that property closed, when the seller got his key or when the seller's PM got his, their keys and they went to the property, the, both units were vacated. It's vacant and they both left. So they were... And that investor, I'm assuming, was writing their numbers based on 2200 a month in rent, and they're not going to be getting that. That's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. So uh, let's get some quick clarity here. This was your first deal. How quickly did the rest of your deals come together after this first one? Yeah. So the next four that I bought were in around a month to two months after that. Um and then ever since then, I've been picking up about one to three every single month. And are these, you're finding them the same way that you were finding deals for clients? Uh, yeah, pretty much the same ways. Yep. All right, Josh, looking ahead, what does your plan look like for how you, you intend to scale your portfolio? I'd like to build more contracting teams so that I can take on more projects at a time. Right now, I'm working on 15 units. I'd like to build a 10x that, rely on more people, W2 more positions so that I can rely on them more and cut your cost down a little bit. Um, those are some lessons that I've learned from professional property managers. Now, are you using the Burr method on these properties very often? Yes, for sure. Okay. So with the change in the seasoning period that we're seeing with a lot of conventional lenders, have you considered how that's going to affect how quickly you can get capital out and the speed you'll be able to scale? Definitely. Um, my strategy hasn't really been affected by that because I actually am not lendable still because I don't have two years of the same income as a 1099 person. <laughs> so basically, I'm just refinancing out in non-QM products. That is awesome. Hey, David, you mentioned that the, there's a change in the seasoning period. What What is that change? Like, is it, I know with the burr, you have to have the tenant in there for, I think, six months. Is that what you mean? Now it's longer than six months? No, it's not necessarily the tenant has to be in there, but if you are buying a property that has a loan on it and you want to refinance and pull cash out of the property, you now have to wait 12 months instead of six months if you're going to use a conventional loan. Now, Josh mentioned he's using non-QM, which stands for non-qualified mortgage. This would be like DSCR products um, that you're hearing a lot of people talk about. Uh, it's important also to note that that does not mean like subprime crap. These are still 30-year fixed-rate loans. It's it's not a whole lot different. The rate's going to be a little bit higher because they're not going to be basing your ability to repay off of the money you make. They're going to be basing it off of what the property will produce itself, sort of commercial underwriting guidelines. But many loans are making you wait 12 months before you can take cash out of a property, not six. So mm. it sounds like from what you got going on, Josh, in, this isn't slowing you down because you're just making money through commissions as an agent. You're not going to run out of cash, right? I don't think so, no. 
Yep, I love that multi-pillared approach, right? When you're not dependent on just one pillar, these changes don't throw your game off because you've got several different approaches here. What are you thinking, Rob, about, about moving forward Josh's strategy? I think it's good, man. I mean, I would definitely want you to... Um, I mean, you're picking up a lot, right? And I think it would be wise to really settle into it, right? If you're If you're at this point where you're at 10, I would start thinking about... With I, I guess I'm just seeing it in your personal situation. You're young, you're hungry, you're making a ton of money, and you're doing the right thing. You're buying property. Instead of just pocketing 100K every month, you're moving it into real estate funds. But I would say now is the moment to maybe kind of take, an, uh, take a step back and start considering your scale approach, right? Like how can you stop putting so much time into one to three properties every month? And how can you start maybe focusing on bigger plays that can maybe even effectively you know, lower your tax bill. Cause I know that this is something that you're probably dealing with for the first time, making a ton of money and having to pay a ton of taxes on it. Right? Yes. Yep. So I kind of jumped on the whole tax situation as early as I could as an agent. Um, I set up my intake commission through an escort versus, uh, an individual. So that lowers my tax burden, uh, substantially. And then I can also leverage like cost segregations as well and the properties that I'm keeping to lower my commissions coming in. I'm trying to utilize as many strategies as I can. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't, you don't hear 22 year olds talk about cost segregation all that often. Never heard that come out of a 22 year old's mouth. Actually the first time. Seriously, dude, I feel like we got to talk about cost segregations more just on the podcast because it is like the, the real estate cheat code that can save you. I mean, in your case, hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. So that's cool, man. I'm I'm really glad to see that you're seeing it. It seems like you're scaling up uh, according to like what you can do. So just think about how you can most effectively use your time because you got the time and the money right now. Now you just got to figure out how to use it the most effectively. True. So your first goal was to replace your DoorDash income. You've done that. What's your next goal? My next goal, um, I want to have 100 units by the end of the year. 100 units by the end of the year. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a little, I mean, it seems like you're thinking about exactly what I'm talking about, right? At one to three properties in a year, that's going to be 10 to 30 properties. So obviously you're thinking, how can I get to a hundred? Right. So, um, I, I think it's so cool, man, that you, you're on this podcast. It's a very inspirational story. You went from being a DoorDash driver to owning a $1.5 million portfolio. And it's also just so crazy to know that next year, your portfolio is going to be wildly different than what we're talking about today. I think so. Yeah. So congratulations, Josh. This is an awesome story. Thank you for sharing where you're at. Very inspirational. You haven't let anything stop you, including your age or how much I think you look like Dave Franco. You're pushing forward <laughs> in spite of all of this. You could be in the Hollywood route. Instead, you took the real estate investing route. So welcome to our side. If people want to find out more about you, where's the best place that they can find you? Uh, two places. You can uh, follow or message me on Instagram at Josh Janice, just my name. And then same thing on Bigger Pockets, uh, Joshua Janice. I'm on there. All right, Rob, where can people find out more about you? Um, <laughs> you can find me over on uh, Rob Bilt on YouTube and Instagram and in your heart. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that joke won't land because the other podcast comes out after this one. But you will see why I laughed if you listen to a future podcast episode. That will make a lot of sense. This was a callback before it was actually said. This is some uh, tenant type stuff that we're getting into where we're manipulating time for you guys on a podcast. You're going to love it. It's a call forward. Yes. Call forward. Even better. There you mm -hmm. go. Josh, it totally makes sense. You don't know what we're talking about. It will in the future. 
So just Alrighty. hang with us here. Thanks for being a good sport. <laughs> you can find me on social media at David Green 24 Don't ever send money to me because I'm not asking for your money. There's a lot of fake accounts out there. So hopefully at one point I'll be able to get the blue check mark. I heard that Meta is changing it so that you just pay like 15 bucks a month and people can stop getting scammed. It's about time. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube at David Green 24 or go to my website, davidgreen24.com and see what I got going on. Josh, fantastic job. Very, very, very excited to hear what you're doing, especially because you're an agent and you're moving forward, check out my books. Let me know what you think about the three books I wrote for uh, in the Top Producing Agent series for Bigger Pockets. I'd be curious what you think as someone who's 22 and is already crushing it. Rob, you have any last words before we get out of here? Yeah, Josh. I guess instead of you could check out the books that David just talked about, but really the book that you need to be checking out is David's upcoming book, Scale, which talks about how, as a real estate agent, you can scale your business, and that will be coming out soon. All right. The promo code for that. <laughs> we don't have one. <laughs> uh, but anyway, check that out. We've had a call forward and a call back all in the same show. Great job, Rob. And we're back. <laughs> all right, Josh, we're going to let you get out of here. This is David Green for Rob, the comedian Abasolo, signing off. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.